You've scanned the headlines, read the articles, and liked the posts. Now listen to the experts themselves in the Future of Work podcast, presented by allwork.space. Are you ready? Hi, Jamie here. Quick disclaimer about the recent episode. If my sound sounds a little bit quiet or off at points during the interview, just remember I live in beautiful Lake Tahoe, California, and I may or may not have been skiing. Welcome to the Future of Work podcast from allwork.space. My name is Jamie Orr. I'm the co-founder of Jelly Switch, as well as CoWork Tahoe. I'm proud to be a writer with allwork.space and even more proud to welcome our guest today, John Odin, the author of Distributed Teams, The Art and Practice of Working Together While Physically Apart. An amazing book and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Welcome, John. Hey there, Jamie. Good morning. Good morning. So a little bit about John and then I'll let him take it away. John Odin is a computer guy who has written code and led teams in companies ranging from four-person startups nonprofits to multinationals, including the U.S. government as part of the U.S. Digital Service in the Obama White House. So quite a decorated career. Uh, do you want to add anything ab- about your background? And, and then I'm really curious to hear what motivated you to write your book. One of the things in hindsight, which I, of course, didn't realize at the beginning, but in hindsight, is that uh, I've been working in physically distributed teams for most of my career. Actually, the first company, uh, part of preparing for this uh, podcast, I was trying to remember what was the first company. I think it was 1991. And most teams I've been in and most companies I've been in have just been all over the place because we were doing weird, interesting engineering projects and all the people that were just the right person for that role didn't all live near each other. So that just, I thought that was normal. And that was the way all companies worked. And... I discovered, and of course I've made mistakes over the years, but I remember discovering at one point that I had somebody who was very, very upset um, about something that was going on in a company, and they, in a big rant, told me like, well, it's not fair, I don't know what's going on because I'm remote, you and your team are all in headquarters, you all know what's going on because you're in headquarters, and I was like, wait a minute, Uh, I'm not in headquarters and no one in my team is anywhere near me. Like, what's going on here? So, of course, engineer brain kicks in and tries to figure out what's the problem. And it's the same company, it's the same product, it's the same teams, and we all were working on different management structures and how we coordinated each other's work was totally different. And that's when I was like, wait a second, there's something going on here. That's when I started to pay attention to it. And that you know, uh, the book is basically 27 years of here's what I tried and here's what did and didn't work, either as an engineer in the team or as a leader of teams or doing consulting for companies and incubators. And I, you know, I, as I jokingly tell people, it's like, at least if you're going to do this, learn from my mistakes. And if you're going to make mistakes, make new ones. So that's what the book is, it's a very hands-on, how to get stuff done book. And I, I love it. It's, it's an incredibly tactical book. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it's the timing of it is, is just impeccable because, you know, we're seeing a real boom in the growth of this distributed workforce. Mm. And so I think that, you know, it's, it's now more than ever, it's important that we all can do this well. So, you know, in your view, who is this book for? 
more. If you can reach out and touch everyone on the shoulder physically of everyone you work with, then you probably are okay without this. But you will need it as soon as your company grows to the point where you cannot reach out and touch everyone on the shoulder. And I haven't, you know, apart from a couple of four-person startups, one of which was in the same garage, another was four people in four garages, like, if you cannot reach out and touch everyone on the shoulder, you need to know how to organize how you work. And some of that is the technology, and of course, as techies, we jump to, do you use you know, this product versus that product for tracking work or for communicating. And of course you have to get that right. But a lot of it is around the human business management of how you work. And that's, I think everyone should do that. So in, in the book, you talk not only about a lot of the, the tactical kind of tips and tricks that, that we'll get into in a minute, but you know, what are some of the other key benefits to corporations and government moving more towards distributed teams? So benefits would be, like obviously a lot of people will focus on, and I think it's interesting, people talking about the benefits for the individual because that's their perspective, right? They're the individual who wants to be able to work from home or wants to be able to work from a neighborhood co-working space. I think the piece that is interesting to, and it's easy to find data for, and it's all over the place and supporting links in the book and the research was why this is good for business. So companies that are physically distributed have a much higher workforce diversity, both in terms of gender, in terms of race, in terms of age, in terms of physical abilities, um, which when you stop and look at it in hindsight, is it's kind of self-evident and obvious. Like if someone is a caregiver, they cannot take a job that is more than 10 to 15 minutes away from wherever the child or the elderly parent is no matter what their qualifications are, no matter how much the employer wants to hire them, they cannot take the job because of the commute. And that's got nothing to do with their technical skills. It's got nothing to do with your recruitment policy and it impacts your diversity hiring. Proven, right? That's easy. Same for people who have physical limitations. I've worked with people who are blind and in wheelchairs. And I don't, like one of them actually used to commute every now and then, which was um, because you know, the, that particular human wanted social interaction, which I think is great and important. Requiring the person to commute five times a week, like every morning and every evening, was actually hard. And, you know, anyone who wants to try a little experiment for themselves, put on a bandage over your eyes and try and take public transit to your office if you have one. I know in my case, I, I would find the sheer idea too terrifying and I would just be delighted if I got to the right building. You know, never mind actually do any work once I got there. So that commute is actually a provable barrier to hiring. And, you know, and then of course there's other aspects too. Like if you require everyone to be in the office to work, you tend to not think about how will your company operate if the office is suddenly closed or you can't get to the office. So I, I point to research around Hurricane Sandy in New York where offices and homes were fine mostly after that, but a lot of people could not travel to the office because the subway was flooded and the company just didn't know how to operate. And the same was true for the California state government in the 1989 earthquake that hit during the middle of a giant telework experiment. The people who were already used to working from home and knew how to work from home were able to quickly get back to work. 
Whereas the people who didn't know how to work from home were unable to learn how to work from home while trapped at home. So they had to, took them a lot longer to get back online and start working again. It basically had to wait for the roads to be repaired and the office to be opened. And that, like there's every one of the people who runs real estate for large corporations, they can tell you the dollar cost per minute of a, of a site closure. And you, they just go away if you all work from anywhere. That's incredible. So in, in terms of, you know, in, in terms of diversity and hiring, in terms of retention, in terms of resilience, uh-huh. companies that can, can really work well in a distributed fashion are, are going to be in, and have been much more successful. Yeah. Are there, I mean, they're, yeah, they're, they're like literally out hiring and out competing. Um, and, you know, if your competitor is able to hire faster and hire better, and retain longer, you know, you're, you've set yourself up for a corporate disadvantage right from the get-go. What do you, and, what do you think the kind of, is there like a, a main reason why you think a lot of organizations aren't doing this more? I mean, do you think it's just that they just don't know how and, and hopefully they just need your book? Uh, well, that was certainly a factor behind writing the book, yes. Um, I do, I mean, tooling, obviously, what tools you use, like how do you handle group chat, how do you handle email and, uh, you know, video calls and all that kind of stuff, is in a, you have to get that right, and so that's why that's a third of the book. But actually, business management is, and how you lead teams, and how team, how do you foster trust, and how do you foster, uh, like, how do you do interviewing? Um, how do you do... You know, how do you deal with conflict if you're in a physically distributed team and conflict avoidance is easy? These are all hard management, leadership things. And if you don't do them right, uh, if you walk around the office to see who's working hardest because you see who's sitting at a chair, then you give promotions to the people who talk the loudest. You know, you, you make all sorts of uh, invalid business decisions based on invalid signals whereas there's some research just came out where women are more likely to take one example women are more likely to get promoted if they work in physically distributed teams because uh in my opinion from reading that that research paper and it's only one research so we'll see um but from that one i i believe it to be that in physically distributed teams you really have to have people clearly showing what they're working on and how they're working so very much a kind of results-oriented work environment, if you want to go with some of the business language that people use. And in those environments, you can more clearly see who really is working and who's just talking the big talk. And I think that's actually a real factor in people then enjoying their work because they actually get recognized for it. And so they stay longer. And then that company outcompetes because the people are doing good work. So... Most, a lot of the incubators, just to add on that, a lot of the incubators I've been working with, the founders are actually scared about how do they start getting an office? And it's like, you know, if you're committing to an office, you're committing to a five or 10 year lease somewhere. You're also going to start only hiring people who live near that office. And then, you know, do you want to start excluding people who want to apply for jobs? Can you predict how many people are going to be working in your company in five years time? Because that's how many desks you're going to have to start renting now as part of the lease agreement. So people are not. They're just like starting to do the co-working space angle where they're like hire anybody and build a distributed team from the start. 
So I think it's a real, it's a seriously big trend. I think this is, we're going through the tipping point right now. And I think we, I think we absolutely need to, you know, I love something that I've heard you say a lot is that, that companies should look to be hiring the best person for the job, not the best person that's willing to commute to their office. Yeah. Yeah. And, and working on a distributed team is, you know, is a big part of that. So, you know, one, one fun kind of anecdote, uh, the all work team actually has an editorial meeting every week that uh, is through Zoom. And mm-hmm. after, you know, after I introduced the team to your book, one mm-hmm. of my favorite tips is, you know, when you're on a call like this to make sure that not only is everyone in, you know, present via microphone, but also via camera. So actually having, you know, being able mm-hmm. to see people's faces. And this is something that uh, the all work team wasn't wasn't doing all the time, and so just last week, everyone turned their cameras on. And I uh-huh. got a great comment that you know two of the writers had been working together for several years, and it was you know really like maybe the second time they'd seen each other's faces. Result of just that one little experiment, uh, you know, being a, a tip from your book was was incredible. And I think that yeah. human connection really does add to building trust and effectiveness yeah. in a remote team. Yeah, I think it's uh, you know it's part of why you know to that topic on the in the book. I mean, uh, having people use their own head and shoulders camera so you can clearly see each other's faces uh, seems sort of silly and distracting. I can do other stuff while I'm in this meeting, or but actually, humans as a species have relied on looking at each other's faces and interpreting nonverbal cues for a long time. And so if you go into a meeting where you suddenly cut out all the verbal cues, so I can't tell is wrinkled eyebrows mean happy Jamie, bored Jamie, grumpy Jamie, frustrated Jamie wants to speak, or is it, you know, like if if I lose all that and I just have silence, I can't tell. Does silence equal angry? Silence equals bored, wait for me to hurry up. Uh, Silence equals eagerly supporting what I'm saying. You know, I can't. And, And so then you get miscommunications and then you get lack of trust and then you get arguments over things that people would actually not argue about if they actually <laughs> could see each other's faces and realize that they were saying the same things or agreeing so a lot of these miscommunications just go away by fixing the basic setups why people don't like getting on video calls is because they get on video calls and say oh well i don't look good or i feel like like I'm being watched or I feel like it's uh, not flattering to me. It's like, well, you know, you could move the camera. You do have the physical ability to move the camera and maybe even turn on the lights and suddenly it's much better. Um, But most people don't think about it. So that's why I make a point of going through the mechanics of the details of that in the book. And you're right. It it makes a huge difference. All those nonverbal cues, massive, massive difference in terms of trust and communication and just how fast meetings go. You know, you're not waiting for someone to stop talking and have a couple of seconds silence before the next person starts talking or the next person unmutes and starts talking. You can instead start talking more naturally because you can see each other's faces and you can use those nonverbal cues. And I think that's an incredible benefit that, that I know I certainly didn't think of before reading your book is just the, you know, not only the accessibility to your team using some of these tools and things like lighting and having the cameras on, but also the efficiency and the productivity increases as mm-hmm. a result of these, you know, really 
really actionable and, and pretty simple tricks that if, if you do spend just a little bit in getting used to using them, you know, I've, I've noticed that my productivity when I'm on, on these calls has gone way up. And it's yeah. not something that I expected. Yeah, I mean, and they are simple. Each one of them is like simple tricks, but they, you know, <laughs> I could write like several novels of all the things I tried that went wrong um, that didn't make things better. And um, so I tried to just, the book is really just a collection of this worked, try this simple, you know, I've minimized down the easiest thing you can try to make an improvement. And uh, I've, so far I've had actually good feedback from people. It seems to be working. So thanks for also saying that too. Of course, yeah. And, you know, we, we've spoken a lot about, about how much I've gotten away, you know, taken away from this book. You know, as the author, what do you hope that readers will really take away from it? I think the first one is that it's actually easy to do. And also, usual, the funny thing I get a lot in questions from people is, oh, wait, this is, it must be hard. You must be using some special secret new technology product that I don't have my hands on yet. And what's the secret tool that you're using? And I think, you know, we come from engineering backgrounds and we tend to think about engineering tools. And the realization that this is actually a human problem. Of course, the technology has to work, but it's how humans communicate with each other and how humans organize how they work. I think that's the one, that's the biggest, biggest thing. And uh, if, if that's all that people pick up on and they start to change how they behave as humans uh, using existing tools, they'll be really happy with the uh, progress that they see. Um, I also think that it's um, something that applies in a lot more organizations than I originally thought of. So I found myself talking to nonprofits where they're working with people in different locations. I found myself talking to organizations that are dealing with disaster resilience issues where something went down and suddenly they don't have an office or I don't have a bridge between two offices in a, in a physical actual bridge um, between two offices um, and they're trying to figure out how to work with that and this is um, uncovering what was actually pre-existing internal in the office miscommunication problems and you can work on those very easily starting today yeah and I love how you focus on again the, the technology is not the solution and that it is it is a human problem uh-huh. And, you know, you're not, you didn't just write this book and, and throw it out into the wild. You know, you're actively working right. and talking to tons of people and governments and, you know, all over the uh-huh. world, really uh-huh. promoting this as, you know, as a movement, like you said, we're, we're on the tipping point. So can uh-huh. you talk a little bit about some of the things that you're doing to help implement and apply everything that, that you've written about in the book? Sure. Um, uh, one is just a, an awareness thing. So, for example, yes, the technology's improved. We all have a lot more access to high-speed internet. It's not perfect across the world yet, and even within the United States yet, but it's getting better. Um, but there's also factors to include there that are non-technical that are important. To, that is part of the same conversation. We don't have the idea of a job for life anymore. We haven't had that for a couple of decades, which means people change jobs all the time, which means people 
if you go to an office, we'll have a different commute pattern every couple of years, which means city planners cannot build trains and reroute bus routes fast enough because humans can change jobs even faster. And so you will always have people saying, oh, I'd love to take the bus, except it doesn't go to where my office is. Because you're in, it did for a year or two, and then you changed jobs. Now you're in a new company with a new office that is not convenient to public transit. So you drive. So our carbon footprint for the state of California is going up because more people are driving and more people are driving further distances because of this changing job. So that's a social impact from a carbon point of view. The other part of all this is other, again, non-technical changes. Uh, 2017 was the first year where millennials or Gen Y became the largest segment of the US workforce. And they've all grown up with no job for life. And they've seen that they need to be able to live their lives and actually still have meaningful careers and why bother relocating for a new job because you're going to be leaving it again in a short time so that's a you know migration patterns within the u.s are dropping drastically they're at the lowest they have ever been since they started recording them in 1947 and you know that's gen y or millennials well sometime either 2020 or 2021 gen z which comes after millennials will be the next largest segment of the workforce. Also the same economic footprint of what they're walking into. And for both of these populations of people, they always grew up thinking iPhones always existed, free streaming video, Skype always existed, and always had high-speed internet. I, I totally agree that you know city planners can't necessarily plan in the same way that they used to. So you know what what role do you see government playing in promoting and kind of handling this distributed workforce? Well, the, the traditional model for government economic development, which is, you know, traditional meaning it's the way government started doing this soon after we started inventing factories in the 1880s, was that a particular jurisdiction would incentivize or give a bunch of money to a large corporation to come and set up a uh, their premises or their office or their factory in in your town and you know there was a few reasons for that one is that the organization would now be employing the local people and training them up and they would you'd have people come in get a job in the mailroom and work your way up to being you know maybe a VP of some department at some point over the course of your career uh, that would give the the organization would then be paying back taxes to the company to the jurisdiction so the organization would pay taxes to the jurisdiction so eventually the jurisdiction gets their money back also local people get jobs at the company which is great um, and those local people pay taxes as well so the jurisdiction gets their money back so it's an interesting way to like kickstart an economy by bringing in a catalyst to make something work that changes when you don't have a job for life. Um, one is that people, uh, employers tend to only hire people who have the skills that they need. So they won't, it's less likely that people will hire someone who's clearly not proven and then train them up through the ranks. That's fading away as a thing now. So people are hired for a particular skill. They work for two years is now the industry average in Silicon Valley. 
uh, and then they'll leave and go work somewhere else. So why train someone if you know they're going to leave? It's only going to cost you money. And so you get a lot of companies cutting back on training, workforce training, career progressions inside the company, which means if a company moves to your jurisdiction, even if you give them incentives and they move, they're only going to hire pre-trained, pre-existing people who typically won't live there. So they're going to bring in other people to work at their company. They're not going to hire many of the local existing population. So then you get a, a group of people who want to live near the new office. So you get this gentrification displacement game going on where they displace all the people who used to live there. That's one problem. And then the other people still have a long commute. So now you get a traffic commute problem. That's another problem. The other one is that companies are now very, very good at negotiating incentives for this because they know how valuable it is. So they'll negotiate a lot. And then they will also be very, very good at making sure they don't pay corporate taxes. And I'm not an accountant, so I can't not figure out all the hoops, but they make sure that some of these large companies manage to pay less taxes than me as an individual, which is quite amazing. Um, so the jurisdictions don't get their money back from the corporate tax. And that's what triggered this uh, different approach. I think having co-working spaces in different communities so people can live wherever they want and have a meaningful career while living in a neighborhood that now has employed population of people bringing net new revenue in. Like if, if I work in South Lake Tahoe, to take a hypothetical example, and then uh, I go work in a co-working space there, and I get paid by an employer that's not there, I'm bringing net new cash into South Lake Tahoe. And then I go spend it in a coffee shop or in a restaurant. That's net new revenue going around inside the town. And that's an important enabler. And also, I'm also normalizing the idea you can work online because my neighbors will see me walking down to the co-working center and having a good job and walking home. And they might, at some point, my neighbors who would have never considered working online will come and ask me, how do you do that? What kind of job do you do? And so then they can see that normal people work online and have meaningful careers. So I think those co-working spaces are really, really important. And I, I mean, I completely agree. And, you know, I may be somewhat biased, but that's, I mean, that's exactly what we've seen in South Lake Tahoe, Cohort Tahoe, is we've gotten, you know, not only as a result of having a, a physical co-working center that people can walk or ride their bike to, and it, it's allowing people to live in a, a mountain town like ours, because that's where they'd like to live, while mm -hmm. still participating in the workforce that they did when they were in New York or Chicago or Silicon Valley. And mm -hmm. You know, we are seeing a, a pretty big impact on the surrounding neighborhood and the community as a whole, because not only are, are new people to town participating in these jobs, but it is inspiring and allowing the local workforce to also see that it's a possibility to participate in this distributed workforce as well. You know, so yeah. I think that, you know, governments and policymakers and economic development institutions should really focus on working in a flexible workspace instead of these incentive packages to large corporations? Yeah, it's. Um, I, I try and avoid absolutes because there's always an exception case for something. So, um, but I'd say usually 
Um, I like not talked about much, but in that Vermont remote worker law that you mentioned a minute ago, there is a clause about helping state grants to help create co-working spaces in small towns. Because if you get people moving to Vermont to work remotely from Vermont, uh, then at some point you need social interaction. You can't just work from home alone all the time. And so these co-working spaces, again, in the walkable neighborhoods in these small towns would encourage people who are working online to come down and work out of the co-working space where there's high-speed internet, meet their neighbors, normalize the idea of remote work. And so to make that easier to start, there's a matching grant clause in that uh, law. So if you're in Vermont and you want to create a co-working space in your neighborhood, the state has a matching grant clause in there to help that. And I think that to me, uh, the reason that I think is important tied to the longevity of uh, our average tenure in workplace, if you live in a neighborhood and you walk to your co-working space and you work for an employer for two years and you quit and you then start working for a new employer, you still live in the same house, you still walk to the same neighborhood co-working space. And that provides a consistency that means that the local jurisdiction, your town, now has longer term residents who spend more time walking in their main street, who pay taxes, which means this, the town actually can start doing better planning for things like schools and roads and all the other things that take multi years or decades to set up. So I think that stability of population and stability of revenue and a diversified revenue stream, like one person in that co-working space might get laid off because their employer closed down but it's not 80% of the town population got laid off. Because if, if, if your local economy depends on one employer and that one employer shuts down and 80% of your population gets laid off, even the 20% that don't work for that employer lose all their customers. And the entire town is gutted. And we've seen pictures of this all over and I mean, it's topical in the news these days about the United States, but the same is true for other locations outside the United States as well. So having all eggs in one basket, to me, feels like a, a risky maneuver for a jurisdiction. It's certainly a risky maneuver for your savings account and your own retirement plan. So you should diversify your income stream. And the same is true for jurisdictions. And I think these incentives for remote working, co-working spaces helps diversify the income stream for jurisdictions. So I think it's a really important maneuver. Yes. This is incredible, John. Thank you so much. So if you haven't read the book yet, Distributed Teams, The Art and Practice of Working Together While Physically Apart, it's it's a it's a critical read for the future of work. So check it out. Um, I have learned so much from it and I really do think we are at the tipping point. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Future of Work podcast. My name is Jamie Orr, and can't wait to have you join us for the next one. Thank you very much, Jamie. If it's impacting the future of work, it's in the Future of Work podcast by allwork.space. Are you ready?